0: Church, we are in Ezra chapter 3 this morning. We've working through Ezra. This is the story of God's faithfulness to renew and restore his people. Chapter 3 is about the, the exiles who've just returned from Babylon and they begin to rebuild the altar and rebuild the temple. Ezra chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 1. This is God's holy and sacred word. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered at one, as one man in Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua the son of Josedak with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the sons of Shealtiel with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings, excuse me, burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid, so they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrants to bring cedars, cedar trees from Lebanon to the to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, and the priests, and the Levites, and all who came to Jerusalem from captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah, together supervised the work, the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, and their sons and brothers. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud with joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, And the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. What we worship and how we worship matters. As we see in this passage, atonement precedes worship. If you don't know what atonement means, stick with me. We'll learn that. We'll get there. But as we remember from chapter 2 that the way that we worship the Lord matters. Instruction is given on how God's people are to worship Him and how they're to conduct themselves. It's clear in the Bible how God's people are to follow after Him, but it's appears to be very unclear for a lot of Christians today, and I want to share with you some kind of findings from a recent survey done by Ligonier Ministries. I don't know if you're familiar with Ligonier, started by R.C. Sproul, the table talk thing we pass out, that's a part of their ministry, but they do this theological survey every few years. You can go to their website, stateoftheology.com, and read about this, but their findings are truly heartbreaking. I'm going to share some of these with you, and they, they ask all kinds of thousands of Americans what they believe about theological issues, and then they kind of break that group out into evangelicals. Now, the word evangelical can mean a lot of different things, but they kind of define it with these four things. This is how they define evangelical. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. This is the, the way they defined with, with their survey. It is very important for me to personally encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. The fourth one, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So all that's good, right? We would agree with that. That's, That's a good kind of group, a way to define evangelical Christian. So they begin to ask them questions about God and theology, and this is just some of the 35 questions, some of the answers. First, one of the questions, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of evangelical Christians agree with that. You're not a Christian if you agree with that. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Forty-eight percent of the evangelicals agree. God is learning and adapting as He goes. It's contrary to Scripture. Another question, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Seventy-three percent of evangelicals agree with that. If you agree with that, you're not a Christian. The next question the Holy, Be- the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. 60% of evangelicals agree with that. I just want to tell you unequivocally you are not a Christian if you believe that. You are not a Christian. Worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly gathering and attending church. Fifty-four percent of evangelicals agree with that. Gender identity is a matter of choice. Thirty-seven percent of evangelicals agree with that statement. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that can remove the penalty of my sin says 99 percent of evangelicals agree with that. So if you, I'd encourage you to look at this survey and read it because what it reveals is that there's a lot of Christians who know good Sunday school answers. But when it comes to their obedience to the Lord, following the Lord, they don't even know the doctrine of the Trinity. They don't even believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, let alone that he can pay for their sins as a created being. So you can see why it matters what we believe. It matters what we believe and what God tells us in His Word. The nation of Israel in Ezra 3 is seeking to restore the obedience to the Lord. They're seeking to obey God's Word. They begin by setting up place for atonement, rebuilding the altar. This is the first chunk of this passage that they gather around in Jerusalem, the priests and the king, right, which is a foreshadowing of Christ, who is the perfect king and is the perfect priest. They begin to set the altar in place. And this is the, the first thing they did when they came into the promised land for the first time. Out of Egypt, out of the desert, into the promised land to build an altar. A place that they could begin to atone for their sin. Now, in the Old Covenant, God gave the people a written law. In Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and and part of Deuteronomy, He's spelling out for His people, this is what it means to follow me. This is what it looks like to obey the commands I have given you, how you're to do business, how you're to worship me, how you're to, to govern yourselves, and how you're to live and interact with your neighbor and with the nations around you. He's spelled it all out for them. And part of what He gave them was this system of sacrifice and offering, where they would come and they'd bring a, a sacrifice or an offering, and they would offer it up. The priest would take it and offer it on the, uh, on the altar. I can't get the word out. On the altar. That's they, were, they were offering these things to the Lord. And there were five sacrifices, right, or offerings. There's the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Now, each of these involved certain elements or different animals or fruits or, or grains from the field, and they had a specific purpose. And when you're reading through these in your Bible reading plan, you know, sometimes it can be kind of monotonous. You're like, well, how do these people keep this straight? they got to offer this thing for that, and this many birds for this thing, and, and it's hard to keep all that straight. But this is the way the Lord was instructing his people to worship him. So the priest would take the offering and they'd usually divide it up into two or three pieces and they would put part of it on the altar to offer as an as a atoning sacrifice. But the, the atoning wasn't like a full atoning. It was, it was kind of a partial atoning. And what I mean by that is the, the, the blood of the animal or the grain offering had to be given. A sacrifice had to be made. But that sacrifice in and of itself, didn't atone for sin, but it it rested on the work that Christ would accomplish. So when Christ died on the cross, He was not just dying for all the people who were still ahead to live and to sin. He was literally dying for all sin. All of it, Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. He was paying the price for the sin. And so even as the the people of God are systematically offering up these sacrifices, they're doing so in hopes that there is a Savior to come, a Messiah who will come for them. And that's how the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they point to the perfect and the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As with the rest of the law, it's a foreshadowing of things to come. The reality is found in Christ. We recognize as Christians today that Christ's death paid the price for our sin. We no longer need to take a a ram or a goat or a, a bull or some grain and take it to the priest because Christ has done this atoning work for us. His death opened up the holy place for us. See, this language of atonement, the reason that the Jews came back and they wanted to rebuild the altar so that they could begin to make the sacrifices again, so they could observe the morning offerings, the evenings and the burnt offerings, the feast of booths, all the things that God had instructed them to do. Part of that was having an altar in which they could do it. So before they could rebuild the temple, and keep in mind, the temple was like, this was their glory as a people. This was, I mean, this is the temple. This is where God dwells. This is where He instructs. This is where we, we go into the Holy of Holies on the, on the Day of Atonement. This is so precious for them. But they didn't come back and say, let's rebuild the temple so that everyone will see. And the nations will know. They said, let us rebuild the altar so we can begin to sacrifice as we are commanded and instructed. So atonement, it's the paying, paying the price for something. It's, it's an exchange of sorts. To atone for something is to take the punishment or the consequences for something. And our faith, our faith rests on this, that Christ atoned for our sin, that he paid the price for all of our sin. All the sin we committed, Christ atoned for that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He Himself, Christ, bore our sin in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Hebrews 9 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing our eternal redemption. Again, Hebrews 9 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But the people knew when they came back from captivity, and what we know today is our sin isn't a light matter. God never takes sin lightly. He doesn't treat it in a trivial way. And so often, we do this. We just kind of act as if it doesn't really matter. Like, this isn't a big deal. This this doesn't cost much. You can imagine kind of back in the old covenant, like, well, I mean, you know, the consequence for this sin is a dove or, you know, kind of a pile of grain. So this sin looks pretty good. I'm going to go ahead and and take that deal, and I'll give him the dove. I'll, I'll give him the grain. Let me do what I want to do. It's cheap grace, cheap grace, because that dove or the grain isn't paying the price for the sin. It's the death of Jesus Christ that paid the price for the sin. And so for us, this day, we need to be mindful that although this altar covenant or altar um, sacrificial system is gone, it's gone because Jesus Christ died, paying the price for us. This is atonement. This is atonement. In the process of... Of uh, becoming a, a member of Proclamation Church. We, we sit down with people. We have a discussion. We hear their story. What was, how did Christ save you? You know, how's your, how do you, how are you loving the Lord? And, and one of the questions we ask, and it's a difficult question to ask because it just feels weird, but the question's really simple. Just briefly tell me, what is the gospel? We, we talk about the gospel, we claim to be Christians, this is, if you can condense everything down, this is the good news. So we just want to hear you know what the gospel is. And we're always looking for several things, but we're looking for this language of atonement. That you get this, that you understand this, because if you don't get this, you don't get the gospel. So we're not, people usually don't use the language of atonement But they'll say something about Jesus died for my sin. Jesus paid the price for my sin. Jesus' blood covered my sin. It's this language of exchange. I was guilty. I was sinful. But Jesus Christ came in and He died for that. He atoned for that. I'm right before God because of Jesus' blood. Nothing else. We want to know that we know that this is God's work for us. That He has atoned for our sins. So as His people, it does matter how we worship and what we worship. But before we can worship, we have to, there has to be atonement for our sin. Before we can begin to praise God and follow God and, and trust God and be a Christian, we have to believe that Christ has died for us, that atonement has been made. In Romans six twenty three, beautiful verse. It's a great verse to memorize to use for evangelism. If you don't memorize it, if you don't have it memorized, memorize it. Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. For the wage, the consequence, the reality, the inheritance, the end of the road with sin is death. But the free gift of God, the free gift is eternal life. Now you tell me how that makes sense from a human perspective. It doesn't make sense. That's why it's grace. That's why it's God's love. That's why we can take no ownership in our salvation. We can take no pride in our holiness and say, well, you know, I've worked really hard for becoming a Christian. It took a lot of work, but I'm finally there. No. It is the free gift of God. We believe it. We press into it. We trust it. It is His gift for us, and it's from Jesus Christ and no one else. So atonement is vital to how we worship because Jesus Christ has purchased our sin. He's secured for us a life as his believers, his followers. No longer are we kind of making these sacrifices, obeying just the letter of the law, but we are to have a heart to obey God, to follow him. The temple, the second part of this passage is them beginning to rebuild the temple. So they acknowledge the atonement and now the rebuilding of the house of worship. So through this, they begin to lay the cornerstone and they put all these people to supervise this. Now, I've worked a little bit of construction in my life. Enough to know that you read through this, and that's a lot of supervisors, right? There's a lot of guys walking the job site, right? Which sounds kind of annoying if you're like just the worker. But why are they doing that? They're not not making mistakes here. They're going to be detailed. It's going to be done right. They're very cautious. They take every precaution. They do everything they can to make sure the work is done right. Because they want to honor the Lord. They want to worship the Lord correctly. And when they lay that first stone, they just get one stone laid, and they begin to celebrate. They begin to celebrate, to remember what God has done. And they have this, this part of the song, for He is good. Seventy years in captivity, carried off by, into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Suffered hardship, traveled thousands of miles to get back, facing hardship, for he is good. For he is good. They didn't say, well, you know what, God, he finally showed up for me. He finally pulled through. You know, I've been, we've been trying to do this faithful thing for a while. We had our doubts, but you know what, God, you know, he, all right. He, you know what, I think, I think I can trust him now. For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It was steadfast love when he brought them out of Egypt. It was steadfast love when he brought them into the promised land. It was steadfast love when he took them into captivity. And it was steadfast love that brought them back as they begin to rebuild the temple. It's his steadfast love. And here we see these people who are kind of, two things are happening. It's kind of an awkward situation. Some are rejoicing. They've heard about the temple. They've heard about the city. They've heard about the altar. And here, they're a part of the group. They're the ones to witness. They're laying the foundation stone in the temple. The house of worship. And they're rejoicing. They're praising God. And then there's another group. Those who remember temple. Those who were there before it was destroyed. And they begin to weep. Not because God hasn't been faithful. Not because he hasn't been good. They begin to weep over what was lost. Over what could have been. If the people were obedient to God... If they were obedient to him, he would not have disciplined them and carried them off into captivity. If the people would have been obedient to him and obeyed him, the temple would not have been destroyed. Now, there's no doubt. There's a mix of emotions here, but I think one thing we can take away is we need to be careful. Just because good times are good, or we're like, man, we're this, we're rebuilding this. This is great. We need to know how to lament sin. We need to remember the cost of things. There's multiple people in our congregation, and this is a blessing, who, who are on their, their second marriage, third marriage. The Lord has, has given them a spouse. They're, they're in a marriage covenant with someone who loves the Lord. and That's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. We, we rejoice in that rejoice in that. But there's something to grieve. There was a first marriage that did not work. There's a first covenant that broke and fell apart. But the Lord is gracious. The Lord is good. So there's this tension in us of acknowledging the goodness of the Lord. And we, we can kind of contrast that with the brokenness of ourselves and the, the way that things went bad and, and wrong. And here we have these people, some are weeping that the temple was destroyed. We have others rejoicing because they don't know any different other than the new temple. But so God is so gracious to us. In the midst of our failing, in the midst of, of our shortcomings, our, our giving in to sin... He is faithful. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward us. See, in the old covenant, in the, the temple, I mean, this was the center of everything. This is where they gathered for worship. They'd offer the sacrifices, as we mentioned. Once a year, the, again, the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence was. There's a curtain there. They would go in once a year. And there was this all this ritual they had to do before they could go in. They would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. This was a center of how they worshiped the Lord, the temple. They're rebuilding it. And so often, as we talked about this theological survey, and people just they have no theology. They're heretics in their theology. They're not Christians in their theology. We begin to just kind of not value the things that God has valued. God says, do these things. Well, I think that's kind of optional. God says, worship me this way. Well, you know, I think that's, we can see how that goes. Maybe we'll try something different. See, the Lord is faithful what he's doing here in chapter 3 is he's restoring the commands he's given to the people. And so as believers, we need to be calling ourselves and one another to holiness and to God's word, to trust his word, to press in to one another, to follow him more faithfully. Are we trusting in the atonement of Jesus Christ? Are we trusting in that? Are we, are we worshiping God, as He has instructed us to worship Him. So, as we close, I just want to ask a few questions. Again, the atonement of Christ. Do you trust the atonement of Christ, His death, His blood, for the forgiveness of your sin? Do you trust it for all of your sin? Or is it just most of your sin? But there's still this really big screw up? And I don't know if God can cover that. Or or most of them, there's still some sin that I'm kind of enjoying and I don't want to repent of. Are you trusting in the atonement of Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Are you aton- trusting in the atonement of Christ for your grace? That his blood has covered you. That you walk in grace. And this is not cheap grace, this is expensive grace. This is grace purchased by the Son of God. Are you walking in that? When you fall short, when you're short, when, you're, when you get angry and you sin against your spouse or your children or one another, you indulge in sin against the commands of God, you give in to that. Do you trust the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross to forgive you and to walk in grace? And do you trust it for new life? Genuine new life. Not like, well, you know, things are a little better. I'm trying to be kind. or am giving more money away to charity. But I mean new life. Your desires are new. Your affections are new. The things you once loved, you're beginning to hate. The things you once hated, man, now you're beginning to love them. Are you trusting in the atoning work of Jesus Christ for these things? And are you worshiping Christ? Are you worshiping Him with your obedience to Him? It's one thing to say, I'm worshiping Lord, the Lord because I gather with the church on the Lord's Day, which is a good thing. We, we sing, we, we pray, we read Scripture. It's good. But are you obedient to the Lord? Are you striving to be and have a pattern of obedience to Him? You can see the connection between the striving for obedience and the needing to know what grace is, and knowing you're forgiven. If you lose the part about God's grace or His forgiveness, then your obedience just becomes you trying to get points with God. Well, I'm just trying to do the right thing. hoping God notices. Hopefully the, the scales kind of weigh out in the end. Forgiveness comes because Christ is atoned. Or you grace comes because Christ loves you, He gives you that grace, and therefore, downstream from those things, because He's done those things, we walk in obedience. We strive to walk in obedience. We fail daily, regularly, often we confess, and we keep walking in obedience. Do we work? Do we worship Christ with our joy? Do we even desire to be joyful people? Do we see a connection between Christ's love for us and the command to be joyful? There shouldn't be any more joyful people in the world than Christians. We literally have had our sin paid for. You're not going to hell because Jesus Christ. Be joyful. Be joyful. If you're like me, that usually requires you to preach it to yourself. I don't really roll out of bed just like, joyful, joyful when I begin to memorize and focus on the word and remember what Christ has done for me, joyful. I'm going to give you a little t- tip or a helpful hint. Are you struggling with a-, a sin in your life, a sin struggle? There's probably not a whole lot of joy in your life. You need to strive to be joyful. Remembering God's word, singing the songs we sing on Sunday morning, fixing your mind on the Lord. Because it's hard to be joyful in God and be given over to sin. The way we worship Christ, obedience, joy, and sacrifice. Sacrifice. Are you seeking to be sacrificial? The Lord saved you. And what a beautiful thing. He didn't just save you and say, okay, Continue on in your selfish, sinful, worldly ways. Christ came and gave his life. He gave his life. And then he says to those whom he's redeemed, you too lay down your life, for when you do that, you will find life. There is no life in hoarding up. There is no life in kind of protecting everything you have and trying to keep it all to yourself and maybe just giving you a little bit. I'll, I'll sacrifice a little bit. You don't even notice it. It's not a sacrifice unless it hurts. It's not a sacrifice unless it costs you something. We live in a day and age where we can give away a lot, money, food, whatever, and we don't miss it. Like, sure, we're not maybe going to go buy a bunch of other things, but we're not really missing it in our life. But here, we see the nation of Israel coming out of captivity, giving what they can to honor the Lord, giving sacrificially. Now, we have to be wise with that. I know there's a caveat there. I don't think any one of us really struggle with giving away too much. We're going to be sacrificial in our worship of the Lord because Jesus Christ, as been sacrificial in coming for us, dying for us and giving us new life. Pray with me if you will.